Hello, folks. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly here on the 3rd of July, 2011, which means that tomorrow, if I have done my figuring right, it's the 4th. So today, um, and I hope this doesn't sound too grandiose, our show is all about what it means to be American, or rather become American, where we come from, how we got here, the connections we make, and the connections we keep. We're going to be presenting a couple of stories, two of them from my pals here at KUSP, Sean Ramosferum and Wenda Hasey. Sean recently became a U.S. citizen, and we'll accompany him through that process of naturalization. And uh, Mwenda recently visited her mother's homeland in Kenya and got some new insights into her own evolving sense of Americanness. We'll hear about that trip. Also, we'll talk to filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi about her experiences attending naturalization ceremonies in 50 states and meeting new U.S. citizens. That's all ahead today on the 7th Avenue Project. Your patriotic duty is to keep listening. All right, part one of today's show, You Make Me Feel Like a Naturalized Citizen. And I suspect some of you are already familiar with the protagonist of this story. This is All Things Considered on KUSP. For KUSP, I'm Sean Ramosferum. Sean is a reporter and on-air host here at KUSP, heard every weekday afternoon. He moved to the U.S. from Canada with his family 10 years ago. And after a time, he became a permanent resident. And then in January of this year, he decided to take the next step and apply for U.S. citizenship. After filing the necessary paperwork, passing the test, jumping through some bureaucratic hoops, and sweating out some last-minute snags, Sean finally got word in April from the U.S. government that his request had been granted. He was to report to Campbell, California on April 28th for the official swearing-in ceremony. Sean's brother Nimesh came up from L.A. for the event, and his old friends Jeff and Chris drove all the way from Toronto to be there. I came along and recorded the proceedings. And as we all rode over to Campbell together, I asked Sean about the whole significance of changing his nationality, of leaving one country behind and adopting another. So I want to know your feelings, you know, now, and maybe I'll ask you a little bit after the ceremony, but you love Canada, right? I sure do. But I haven't lived there for 10 years. And for many of the past 10 years, I've felt kind of like a man without a country. I went and lived in Chile for a while. And they'd be like, so, you know, where are you from, gringo? Because I came on a you know, boat with 19 other Americans who were all white. And they'd be like, so what are you from, Brazil or, or, or Colombia or something? What, what are you? And uh, I would say, well, I'm Canadian. And they'd go, well, why aren't you, you know, white like Canadians? They, they, they find it very hard to grasp the fact that they're, you know, people of many types in North America. So... But, but I, I think that experience especially made me kind of feel like, well, am I Canadian? Am I an American? Do you need a country to have an identity? Um, so not feeling as Canadian as I used to, I feel like I might as well be an American since I, I at least live here, you know? People are still going to ask you where you're from, right? They will. And I'll tell them a very long story. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of the story. Your parents are from, from Sri Lanka. True. Uh, and they came to Canada when? I'd say the early 1980s. Is that accurate? Um, they, they moved from London, though. Um, so my, my, my father moved to London to, to get himself an education. My mom followed him, hopelessly in love. Uh, they married there, and then he, he went to Canada thinking, I have English qualifications um, in accounting. It'll be easier for me to get a job in, in Canada. 
Um, but I think now that he's moved to America, he wishes he had come here first. I think he feels like there's just far more opportunity here, and he's in love with California. So your parents moved to Canada from England, but originally from Sri Lanka, and then they had you and your brother in Toronto? Correct. And you grew up, you know, your first 16 years, right, in, in, in Canada? My first 16, yeah, absolutely. Uh, did you feel Canadian? In every sense, yeah. Even though you were sort of first generation? Yeah, but, um, you know, I wasn't alone, so. Toronto has the most Sri Lankans outside of Sri Lanka for, for any um, one city. And, you know, I lived in Scarborough on the far east end of, of Toronto, and to get to the school where I met these cats here, which was downtown, I would actually pass through, you know, the brown part of Toronto, the yellow part of Toronto, the black part of Toronto. So, I mean, it's a very multicultural city, and, you know, I always felt Canadian even when people would call me chocolate chip and, and what have you, you know? <laughs> I mean, Canadians are just having a good time, you know? Was there a lot of that? Um, there was a fair amount. Uh, though I lived in a part of the city that had lots of black and lots of brown and lots of, lots of yellow, it was, um, we lived in a white neighborhood, went to a white school, and then when I started going to school downtown, it was pretty much a white school, so, you know, gotta hate on someone, right? Was it, was it like, you know, cruel racism, or was it supposed to be just teasing? What, what level was it at? It was mostly teasing for me. I feel like my brother may have gone through a little more of the uh, cruelty and our um, elementary school. Like, he got in fights. I would just... I, I had a low profile at that school, I feel like, so no one really got in my face. Did you play hockey? Did not play hockey. Did not have a cottage. On those two counts, I was practically an alien. But you cheered on the Maple Leafs. Absolutely. I had to. I, I lied to people about playing hockey. I was like, yo, I play hockey. Like, Which league are you in? I never see hockey. I was like, yeah, you know, Pickering. Which is like uh, the next town over. <laughs> you, I mean, everyone would, you know, you, we definitely felt like outsiders, you know? Like, uh, we lived on a street filled with white people. And they all played hockey. And when when they came home from school, they went outside and played all, all afternoon. And we had to go inside. And we'd get a half hour of TV, which was typically saved by the bell. And then we would do work. Uh, we'd do, like, grammar and math exercises, um, like, out of, you know, like, English textbooks. So I couldn't have felt more like, you know, an outsider, but um, an outsider. Did you at least skate? No, I can't skate for shit. Even to this day. Fish? No fishing. What was America to you, then, growing up in Toronto until you were 16? Um, what was it before you came to the United States? Nothing. Didn't really occur to me. I don't feel like a lot of kids in Canada feel this great divide. It probably occurs to you more once you get older, once you become familiar with, you know, geopolitics and, and, and socialism and healthcare and job markets and what have you. But, um, yeah, as a kid, I didn't think about it a lot. The first time I started seriously considering what this country was versus that one was when my dad said, we're moving to that one. What year did you move to the U.S.? in 2001 the year of our lord at the age of 16 at the age of 16 my father my mother and and i came my brother actually stayed back in toronto he wasn't having it really new mesh you're back there why, why did you stay back and how old were you uh i was i believe 19 or 18 or 19 and I, I was honestly just being a little rebellious. I did not want to move to California. I did not want to leave Toronto and my friends. I wanted to stay Canadian. Uh, eventually I realized I was doing nothing in Canada. And I came to America. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it was just a little bit of teenage rebellion. So, Sean, you guys moved to Santa Clarita, right? Could you describe it? Um, the first time I set my eyes on Santa Clarita was in March of 2001. We were driving in um, on northbound on the 5 from Los Angeles, and I remembered getting into the Santa Clarita Valley. You kind of come through a canyon. It's called the New Hall Pass, and then you descend on this valley, um, and my dad said, this is it. This is, this is Santa Clarita. And I remember turning to him and being like, what is it? All you could see were In-N-Out, McDonald's, Burger King, Mobile, Exxon, 76, Taco Bell. And I could not believe that I was moving from easily one of the greatest cities in the world to a truck stop. Would you call it a suburb north of L.A.? or It is the... It is the most northern suburb of Los Angeles County. It was just bizarre, and I don't know. Everyone had bleach blonde hair and a lifted truck, and I felt a little out of place. You told me one of the um, the first things you did when you settled in was to hang a maple leaf flag in your window, your bedroom window. Yeah, and um, my dad said, "What are you doing? The neighbors might see that." <laughs> it was uh, it was a tough move. I, I I struggled to deal with that one. For sure. How has your attitude toward the U.S. changed? You know, in the in the in the ten years since then. I told myself the entire time, like my my junior and senior years, that I was moving to Toronto the day I turned eighteen, or at least the day I graduated high school. It became, and that day came around, and I had no inclination to leave um, whatsoever. I think that was just, uh, in large part, had to do with me discovering L.A. and making friends here, um, discovering the fruits of this country. I think the cities the the infinite possibilities um and uh, in large part the culture you know like you fall in love with the music and the movies and the books and and the people and that's what keeps you in any one place and so when i go back to toronto i feel a certain nostalgia but i don't feel like man i need to get back here as soon as humanly possible well when did you first start thinking about changing your citizenship I think around the election, you know, I was an early supporter of Barack Obama um, to the point where when I volunteered for him for the first time, he was still trying to convince black people that he was black. And everyone I knew didn't consider him a serious candidate and were thinking about Hillary Clinton as as their potential vote. And I didn't have a vote, but I was really excited about this guy. And um, when he was elected, I felt a renewed sense of purpose and, and uh, kind of love for this country. I don't think I think Canada's still a decade or two maybe away from a, a man of color being their prime minister. Maybe not, but it certainly happened here first, and that's a big deal because I'm sure Canadians feel like Americans are more bigoted than Canadians. And yet we have Barack Obama as our president, you know? And I think when I got back, I wanted to be an American, period. Um, and I wanted to vote. Well, we're getting close uh, to the theater, but... Um I just want to know what your feelings have been leading up to this moment, going through the naturalization process, taking the tests, all of that, getting the papers. Uh, you know, what we're doing today is you're just you're just really um, finalizing it by taking. Is it is it called the vow? <laughs> it's called the oath. The oath of citizenship. Yes. I've got the official documentation here. Let me see. I, I can read you. Uh, so, like, uh, I was. Uh, two weekends ago, I spent uh, Saturday and Sunday with my folks on the Monterey Bay, down in Monterey, and uh, and we got home from Monterey, 
and I walked into the house and there was a mail waiting for me from the Department of Homeland Security and I was like, oh God, this is good news or bad news because I had a couple of snags in my uh, process and um, I opened it up and it said, you are hereby notified to appear for a naturalization oath ceremony on Thursday, April 28th, 2011 in Campbell, California. Please report promptly at 1230. And um, I was ear to ear smiles, you know, and my, it was nice that my folks were there to, to see it happen because they were big cheerleaders the whole time. Say more about what you felt. I mean, relief and joy, man. Sheer joy. Because had they denied my application, I would have probably not done it again. I don't think I would have cared. I would have lost complete interest. I would have said, you got to be me. You're losing one hell of an American. You don't know what you're doing. You would have been hurt. To hell with you. Yeah, I would have been hurt. And I, I told these guys this morning over breakfast, I probably would have just gone back to Canada at some point and said, it, you know. Um, if you don't want me, I don't want to play. And it wouldn't have been. It would have just been this mechanical no. It would have, it would have just been the process saying no. It wouldn't be someone sitting there looking at my paperwork, looking at my job history and, and my volunteer history and seeing who this person is and saying no. Exactly. It wouldn't have been some panel of like Americans saying this guy's not worthy. So why would you have taken it so personally? Because I don't want to be a part of that. If that's, if that's the process, if that's the country, you know, what the hell with it. You know, as you talk about it, it's beginning to sound a, bit, a little bit like, um, i, I got to say, like a love relationship, you know, if she doesn't want me, you know, if she doesn't accept my proposal to hell with her, I'm leaving. It's true. I felt that way. Like Lady Liberty, I want to get up that skirt, but if you don't want me. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go in and tie the knot. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm ready. I'm, I've been ready. Good afternoon. Are you ready? Yes. Let's try that again. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Not better. Afghanistan, Algeria, Australia, Austria, Bangladesh. So without further delay, it is my privilege to present to the administering officer of this whole ceremony 424 applicants for naturalization from 71 countries. Repeat after me. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith 
allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combat service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, and that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. Congratulations, you're now United States. Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation. It's an honor and a privilege to call you a fellow citizen of the United States of America. This is now officially your country, your home to protect, to defend, and to serve through active and engaged citizenship. Together, we are a nation united not by any one culture or ethnicity or ideology, but by the principles of opportunity, equality, and liberty that are enshrined in our founding documents. Hi, Mom. Hi. I'm a citizen. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. How did it go? Pretty good. They gave me a gun and a flag. Yeah? No. <laughs> did you believe me? No, I just said yeah. Oh, okay. They had, um, they, had, they had everyone stand up one by one, country by country, and they went down an alphabetical list of uh -huh. all the countries from which all these new Americans uh, uh, immigrated from. And it was pretty cool. The first one was Afghanistan, the last one was Zimbabwe, and in between they had all sorts of places that you would have never thought anyone came from, you know? Really? Well, you must have been boring from Canada. Kinda. You know you know which, which, which country had the most new citizens? Uh-huh. Guess. England? No. Maybe like 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Uh, Guess again. Think more, you know, 21st century. Mexico? Close. Mexico is probably second. Chile, Chile. No, more people. Brown people. Brown people. India? India. A lot of Indians out here in San Jose. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, it was fun. Um, I, it, it was a big relief. And uh, President Obama had a couple words for us, so that was nice. What did your three amigos think about it? What did my three amigos think about it? There's four amigos. Um, but two amigos and your brother. And Robert from KUSP. 
Hi, Chitra. <laughs> Hi, Robert. How are you? Very good. It was a real pleasure to be thank part of this. For, thank you for driving my son. Of course. And I am Robert Polly from KUSP. The show is the 7th Avenue Project. And on um, the 3rd of July, we are talking about what it means to be an American or become an American, as my friend and colleague Sean Ramasvaram has recently done, as we just heard there. We heard Sean go through his naturalization um, and swear an oath of allegiance to the United States and all the rest back in uh, April uh, of this year. So it's two months later, and I have Sean in the studio with me here to talk about that process and uh, and the two months since um, and what it's meant to him. Uh, so first of all, Sean, I want to I want to give you a little test. Hit me a little musical test. I want you to listen to uh, two songs here and give me your reaction. Okay. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea. Detroit down to Houston and New York to L.A. Where there's pride in every American heart and it's time we stand and say From the shores of Nova Scotia to the forests in B.C. Montreal to Winnipeg from sea to oh, no way. sea Detroit, we can see her above the USA Because there's pride in every Canadian heart And it's time to stand and say All right, now, which song did you like? Oh, man. I think I go for the genuine article, you know? The Canadians have enough anthems. You know, every tragically hip song in the catalog will suffice. Good. You passed the test. You passed the test. Both of those were by Lee Greenwood, the guy who um, came up with God Bless the USA back He wrote in the another 80s. song for the Canadians? Yeah, I think he, he might have um, been hedging his bets just in case... Uh, Turncoat. <laughs> his sales would plummet if, if his fans knew that. But but seriously, um, so so two months now, two months in. I mean, is it everything you you hoped for? Is it everything you expected? Being uh, uh, a citizen, has it done, made any difference to you? I don't know if we spoke about this, but the the event that day that I had the most visceral reaction to was when, as soon as we entered the auditorium, um, before we sat down, they they had us sit in this very specific scheme because you were pretty much um, seated according to who your immigration officer was. Oh, Because when they country. handed out the certificates at the end of the ceremony, um, they wanted you all in the same place so that one, your, your officer that interviewed you would have your stack of certificates and it would be easy to dole them all out. And that same officer met you in the aisle as you took your seat and told you where to sit, and then she took your green card. And so if you're a, a green card holder, a permanent resident, that is the most valuable article that, that you possess. You don't give that away. No. Yeah. You, you, when someone asks to see it for some official purpose, you don't let your eyes off. You don't blink. You strain your eyes until they hand it back to you, you know. And she asked for it at that point, And I gave it to her, you know, politely. And then she threw it in a bucket. I, I just went, what? Uh, what? No. And, uh, and I realized, oh. I, yeah, I don't need that anymore. 
now I just tell people I'm an American and I have a right to be here. And they believe me or they don't, but I know deep down that, that I'm legit. <laughs> so, you know, since that day, I, I just feel like my wallet's a little lighter, you know? So you don't, you know, that that is one huge difference, isn't it? You don't have to worry about carrying papers. I mean, you might be asked to present a passport if you travel out of the country, but I mean, you will be, but... But uh, presumably, unless you're in Arizona, no one's going to walk up to you and say, prove your, your citizenship. <laughs> or Georgia. Or how many states now? I don't know. Have passed similar laws? I don't know. But that's really interesting. You th- They threw away your green card. They did. Or they threw it into a bucket in which it'll be hopefully recycled into someone else's <laughs> green card. Um, you know, we heard you back there before you actually uh, completed the ceremony and became a naturalized citizen say that you felt sort of like a man without a country for a time. Do you now feel two months later like a man with a country? Is there a difference there at all? Yeah. I think that that sentiment peaked when I was in Chile, when I was constantly asked, where are you from? What's your story? And my story was long and complicated. And then at the end of this very kind of convoluted story, they just like walk away with a, <laughs> with a kind of perplexed look. And now that story, it would be a short story. It would be, I'm an American. Mm. Uh, now, you are the very first member of your family. Yes. To become an American citizen. Yes. I mean, probably going back all the way to the beginning, the first member of your entire lineage. The clan. The clan. Yeah, absolutely, I am. Um, w- what are relatives saying about this? I think it's made the biggest impression on my, my, my parents, actually. My dad is is just is, is super proud that that he's got a an American Ramos for him. You're the first in our family, the first American Ramos for him. He says it just like that, and uh, <laughs> I guess the 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 kind of uh, the freshness can wear off a little bit. But it's always nice to hear him say that until until he or until my mom or my dad or my brother do it, I will be. The first American <laughs> Ramos from and the only. Well, you'll always be the first. I'll always be the first, and sometime I, I'll i be the only for, for a finite period, I imagine. <laughs> well, we talked about uh, music just a moment ago and which song you preferred, but I, I, I happen to know a th- of a third song that I think you like better than any of them. This is the one we, you, me, uh, your two friends, Chris and Jeff, uh, and your brother Namesh sang as we drove back. Oh, that one. <laughs> yeah. Put put the earmuffs on the children. <laughs> America, yeah, coming again to save the day. Yeah, America, yeah, freedom is the only way. Yeah, terrorist, your game is through. Cause now you have to answer to America. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't get any better. All right, All right. America. Now it's finalized for sure. My countryman, Sean Ramosverum, still swearing his oaths. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. So uh, a few minutes ago, we heard a very abbreviated version of the naturalization ceremony that Sean went through. The whole thing was actually about an hour long and had all kinds of elements in it. There were instructions on registering to vote and how to get a passport. There were inspirational slideshows with archetypal American scenes and music. There was the oath, of course. There were speeches welcoming the new citizens. Even a little talk about the importance of the environment and Earth Day, which had fallen a few days earlier. 
Overall, the event was a kind of hybrid legal procedure, celebration, and civics lesson, and I got the impression that the format left a fair amount of room for local color and human touches. That impression was confirmed by Sharon Rummery of the USCIS, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. She's the public information officer for USCIS's Northwest region, which goes from Bakersfield, California, all the way to Alaska. And she says there's a lot of regional variation in the ceremonies. Here in San Francisco, we have a gentleman named Randall Ricks who reminds people about the Social Security and voting and how to sign their naturalization certificate, but he's also taken care to learn a lot of languages, and he'll say little, make little comments in all these different languages, and it, it perfectly delights the crowd. They just love it. Um, in, uh, in San Diego, we have a gentleman who does the morning show who um, actually goes up into the balcony, which is where the guests sit, and he interviews guests in the morning and talks with them about the, their loved one who is naturalized introduces them and has them take a bow. It can be very, it can be casual, it can be formal. It's, it's all up to the leadership of each uh, field office. You say the morning show? Yeah, we call it the morning show uh, because it's uh, oftentimes we uh, tell people to come at staggered moments instead of asking them all to show up at the same time. If we're uh, naturalizing 1,200 people in the, uh, in the Paramount Theater in Oakland, um, uh, some may come at 9, 9.15, 9.30. So the early comers have a little bit of a sit, uh, you know, before the ceremony starts at 10. So we uh, have a fellow on the stage who'll keep them entertained and also give, tell them things that they need to know. But I imagine there's some, some rules that say you have to do X, Y, and Z, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly have to do the oath. And it's and I haven't I haven't seen in uh, all of the ceremonies we've gone to all up and down the West Coast and uh, Denver and Salt Lake City, Boise, everywhere they always do. They always pledge allegiance to the flag once they've usually once they've gotten their citizenship. So it's their first pledge as a new citizen. They always uh, they'll always play or have a singer sing the national anthem. And some of us singers will ask invite everybody to join in, which is also exciting. It's it's a beautiful day for them. It's it's a moment they've waited for and they've aspired to, but you know, and they think they're lucky. But when you think about it, really, we're the lucky ones because we have them now. Um, do you go to ceremonies yourself? All the time. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to one on Wednesday, and on Friday, and on Monday. Do you, uh, how do you feel when you go to them after all these many years of going to them? Incredibly moved every time. It's never another day at work for us. It's always a moving experience. Sharon Rummery of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Well, I wanted to get an even fuller sense of the range of naturalization ceremonies nationwide, so I got in touch with Alexandra Pelosi. She makes documentary films, and for her latest, she traveled the country attending such events. She went to all 50 states, in fact. The new film is called Citizen USA, and it premieres tomorrow, July 4th, on HBO. By the way, if uh, Alexandra's last name sounds familiar... That's because she's the daughter of Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi. Alexandra, I I have attended exactly one naturalization ceremony in my life, the one uh, my listeners just heard about. Uh, And you have attended how many? Thousands. Seriously? Thousands? Uh, Maybe hundreds. Hundreds. It's hard to count because I had to go to all 50 states, and then in each state I would go to more than one ceremony because it's hard to pick one person to represent each state, so I would go to a couple to try and find the right person to follow and hang out with. And then I went, after the film was done, I went to go show the movie across America, 
and I ended up going to naturalization ceremonies to talk to new American citizens while I was traveling the country. So I've been around. I've, I've been, been around. first. I went to attend one when my husband was becoming an American citizen. Then I went to film them, and now I go and speak at them and give them a little you know pep talk about welcome to America. So <laughs> I've been, I've been to a lot of these ceremonies. Um, so you seem to be the perfect uh, person to ask this. How much of what I saw in Campbell, California? Uh, which included everything from voting instructions in, in five languages to inspirational slideshows to various procedural talks about getting a passport and so on to the uh, the Oath of Allegiance and, and finally um, another slideshow and also a message, recorded message from President Obama. How much of what I saw uh, is the same everywhere? The Obama message to the new American citizens is the same. They play that everywhere. Did they play Proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free? Exactly, yes. They play that at every ceremony, too. They all have to take the oath of allegiance. The purpose of the ceremony is to take the oath of allegiance to the United States of America. So that's why you come. Now, the entertainment varies from state to state. In Washington, D.C., it was in a circus. In Minnesota, it was in the Mall of Americas. In California, they do it in baseball stadiums. In Houston, Texas, they do it in an auditorium with 10,000 people. So the size varies and the entertainment varies, but the rest is all the same. And when you say entertainment, what do you mean? Well, they in Montana, they had a woman clapping plastic plates together, singing a song called Let's Hear It for America. She made everyone sing along. <laughs> or... The Sweet Adelines in Alaska sang for the audience. That's the local, you know, favorite chorus. Every town has a local favorite entertainment. They come out and perform a little like performance to get the crowd in the mood. Did that come as a surprise to you? It certainly did to me to see local variations uh, in the ceremony. I always thought it was going to be some very stern, uh, formalized, and completely standardized process. Oh, yeah, it is surprising. That, you know what's funny is that people from the Department of Homeland Security keep calling me and saying, how do they do it in Minnesota? How do they do it in St. Louis? Because it's regional, and they don't all communicate with each other. So nobody really knows how these naturalization ceremonies occur across America. I think I am the expert in the subject. So how does it work exactly? Does CIS, that is the Citizenship and Immigration Service, do they simply say to the localities and the states, look, you can do the ceremony however you want as long as you include the oath of allegiance and, you know, these, uh, these, these, these standard messages from Obama and this, uh, you know, uh, God bless the USA sequence, and the rest is up to you? Yes. It's, it varies from state to state and from office to office in that state. Some states only have one office. And other states, of course, like California, have many offices throughout the state, and they do it differently in every part of every state. Wow. And you say in Washington, D.C., it took place in a circus, the one in you The Raymond Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus. And they invite the adopted. Remember, if you are adopted, you have, there are a lot of kids adopted from all over the world. They still have to be naturalized. And so they had a ceremony at the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus for the kids mostly. But it was weird because the clown really freaked me out. I think he was freaking the kids out, too. <laughs> so I think it was like, welcome to America. It was, it was, I wouldn't recommend going to that ceremony. <laughs> but you're saying it was a full-fledged circus. It wasn't just a ceremony held in a circus tent. It actually had animals Full and clowns. Circus. And, oh, my God. Oh, wow. Welcome to America. Um, well, what's your feeling, then, about the, the way the ceremonies are conducted and the fact that there is all of this um, leeway for, um, you know, different jurisdictions to do it their way? Well, I think it's nice that they can customize it to their audience. I think if you showed up with plastic plates and made all of the audience in New York City sing Let's Hear It for America, 
that wouldn't really go over so well. But in Montana, it was a huge hit. So I think it's interesting that the people know their own districts and they know their own people and they are allowed to make the performance that will appeal to their crowd. Because it's a big country, you know. And so, you know, they don't want to do it in New York the way they want to do it in Montana. So God bless America. Do you know anything about the history of the ceremony, how, how long this has been going on like this? I don't. Uh, what about the oath? That... that um Sounds really old-fashioned to me. It sounds like it might have existed for hundreds of years. Right. You'll serve the country in issues of national importance. Yeah. And you denounce any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty. Yeah. Can you recite it? Um, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation, that I will... um, perform works of national importance and, um, I'll, you know, on and on about the armed service, being the armed service, so help me God. That's really good. You, you actually did memorize a portion of it, at least. <laughs> at least. I heard it enough times. Just, you know, it's like, proud to be an American. It's in a loop in my head. That song, <laughs> proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. I have that on a running loop inside my head, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You probably don't know the answer to this, but it made me curious whether the uh, the composer Lee Greenwood, the singer and, and songwriter who created that song, gets maybe some action uh, that is monetary action out of all these um, all this replaying of the song. Let me tell you something. This is the American dream. If you can come up with a song, an anthem about America, you can get so rich. That guy is getting so rich. We had to pay $40,000 to license that song, to put it in one hour of an HBO documentary. Oh, my God. So he's making it to the bank, honey. Don't you worry about Lee Greenwood. He's doing well. And I'm just thinking, if I could come up with an anthem about America, that is, I mean, you could just, that, sit pretty for the rest of your life. That's it. That's all you got to do. One song. I wonder how much Irving Berlin made off of God Bless America. Okay, I've had God Bless America in every movie I've made. I've made seven films. And God Bless America has been in each and every one. And again... Did you pay the estate of Irving Berlin? Yes. And guess who owns God Bless America? Uh, Lee Greenwood. The Dutch. <laughs> no. My Dutch husband. No. <laughs> his country. Literally, they bought it. They bought Irving Berlin's library. And so, who makes that money? The Dutch. Oh, that is amazing. There's a story right there. Right. I know. It cracks <laughs> me up because God Bless America isn't even owned by the Americans. Irving Berlin uh, was a Russian immigrant. Uh, I mean, you know, he wrote this as an immigrant. I think it's, you know, it's a really nice story, uh, but it's not going back to his family. No, and the money that they make on those songs to license it every time, they ask 20. Now you have two kinds of rights. You have performance rights and sync rights. So the person who writes it gets money, and the person who performance make, performs it makes money. Wow. So you have to get both rights every time. Wow. So it costs a lot of money to use any of these songs. So I'm telling you. Write a song about America. In this 4th of July, you should just write a song about America, and maybe it'll become a big hit, and you'll never have to work another day in your life. I'm going to get cracking as soon as Me I'm too. done with this radio show. Um, so has all of this uh, changed your feeling about America, about immigration? Well, the thing is, I was born in San Francisco, and I've lived the first 20 years of my life in California. And then I moved to New York, and I spent the last 20 years in New York, and that's where I'm raising my kids. And... People, if you turn on cable news, you get the impression that we're not real America. You know, and when I interviewed Jerry Falwell for a movie I was making, he said, you know, America's like a piece of toast, and we just need to cut off the crusts, meaning the coasts. What I did (laughs) learn from this experience is 
America. I like America because you can go to all 50 states and meet people from all over the world. I thought it was really cool that I got to go to all these different ceremonies and meet all these people, and they are what make America interesting to me. And I think that when you turn on the cable news and you see the controversy and how immigration is just tearing this country apart, I think that there's a real anti-immigrant feeling in America, legal or illegal, by the way. I think that they just think we don't have enough jobs, let's shut the doors, and we shouldn't keep immigrants here. So I love America for different reasons than they love America, but we can all, you know, it's a big country. We can all get along. Mm -hmm. You're you're Italian-American. Yeah, uh, my grandparents were all off the boat from Italy, yeah. Did you think about them while you made this film? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was born in America, and once you're born in America, we have such a short-term memory. We're all so spoiled rotten. Like, we just take everything for granted. We don't think about all the things that people say, oh, I love America because they have toilet paper, or they have indoor plumbing, or they have pizza delivery. All these things that they talk about aren't things that I ever thought about before Mm. It's not like the obvious things like free speech and democracy. Those are nice. But in your daily life, it seems like the things that really make a difference that people really love about this country are the, are the amenities. That's why America's great. I mean, old Europe's fine, too. My husband's from Holland, and it's a perfectly fine country. But it's a, it's a quality of life issue here. It's just really superior to m- most other places on the planet. Um, were there any particular ceremonies uh, that, that stood out for you, that stay with you? Well, they, I think they all, you meet, it's the people. It's not so much the actual ceremony. It's not the actual, it's like, you know, it's like a wedding ceremony. They all say the same words. But, you know, you, if you went to a stranger's wedding ceremony, you wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. But if, you, if it was your best friend getting married, then you'd feel differently. That's how I felt about the naturalization ceremonies. I met people. And then they invited me to go celebrate with them at the Olive Garden. And then they would invite me to their home. And so I got to know the people. So it was special because I got to meet the people there. So that's what made it special. Now, you were filming this during what's come to be known as the Great Recession, yeah? Yes. So, so you know, in the past, uh, a lot of people have come to the U.S. for economic opportunity. At least in the case of some countries, their economies have fared better than the, the U.S. economy during the recession. you find any change in you know, the reasons why people were coming even during the hard times in the U.S.? Well, I think you need to remember that no matter how bad it gets in America, it's still a lot better than most other places on Earth. Maybe the economy of Holland is better than the economy of New York, of America, but my husband didn't come for a job. He came for, you know, this, to, America is sort of the center of the universe, yeah, you kind of have to remember that Hollywood pumps out this thing called the American Dream. And everybody comes here because they want to live that dream. So it doesn't really matter if there's a 9% unemployment to them. They see that dream and they come here and they, they live in the dream. Hmm. And it's not so much about, you know, the immigrants, they work 10 times harder than anyone I know. They all work really hard. My husband still does the 2 a.m. duty, and he really doesn't need to. It's just part of the mentality of, like, I want to fit in. I want people to accept me, and I want, to, I want that white picket fence and that American dream. So I think it's important to, that, to remember they work so hard that they get a house or something like that. In, in a lot of other countries, you can work really hard and die with nothing. And that's what a lot of people say in the movies, that in Africa, you can work hard every day of your life and still die without a penny to your name. Hmm. Alexandra, you said that in addition to attending ceremonies, you've actually um, taken up speaking at them. Is that right? Yeah. At naturalization ceremonies. So what do you say? 
I'm really happy that they chose to become Americans because that's what makes America interesting, is having these new people from these different countries. And, you know, they do the roll call of what country you're from, and then, of course, there's always a, you have to pull out the atlas. Where's Meritus? You always have to figure out. I always go to ceremony, there's somebody from a country I didn't even know existed. Oh, you mean Mauritius. That, whatever, that, <laughs> that country, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I can't even say it's it. off the coast of Africa, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, I'm an American. I, I, the geography thing, if it's not inside the 50 states, who cares? Yeah. Yeah. See, the funny thing is, in the rest of the world, they, they teach you about the whole world, but in America, they only teach you about America. So I grew up with really bad ge- geography. But, okay, there are apps for that now. I'll be able, I'm going to be just fine. <laughs> um, what do you do on the 4th of July? Well, I'm in California because my family is here, and I have brought the kids out. All my sisters come with their kids, and it's our big family holiday. We have a sort of a big family barbecue with every, all the food is red, white, and blue. Is that right? Yeah, you know, we make all the food is red, white, and blue. Um, <laughs> don't ask. The kid, you know, it's all red, red, and blue. And, um, you know, we usually, every year we always, it's actually the day we celebrate my husband because he chose to become an American, intentionally went through the process. So, you know, the first year it was he got his green card, we had to celebrate that. Then the next year it was he's applying for the test. He's got to take the test. He's practicing for the test. Next year he took the test, he passed. Now we're waiting for him to take the oath. Then he took the oath, and it's his first barbecue as an American. And every year we find a way to celebrate my husband becoming an American. Well, thanks for talking to us, and enjoy the fourth. Thank you. Happy fourth to you. Alexandra Pelosi. Her latest documentary, Citizen USA, debuts on HBO tomorrow, the 4th of July. This is the 7th Avenue Project here on the day before the 4th of July. I'm Robert Polly. And finally today, another story about becoming American and the way that identity transcends national boundaries. Wenda Hasey is a reporter and on-air host here at KUSP, And recently she paid a visit to her mother's family overseas. Lucky for us, she took her tape recorder. Uh, My name's Mwenda Hasey. I am the child of an Irish-American, my father, Martin Jefferson Hasey, and a Kenyan-American, Christine Mativo, my mother. I grew up in a small town in central California called Porterville, pretty much known for its oranges and dairies. I've been going back to Kenya periodically since the age of seven, really, to visit my relatives, see my family, see the ancestral home. It's in the highlands of Kenya. Um, The soil is blood red. It's where all the coffee and macadamia nuts are grown. The, The number one reason why my mom came to the U.S. was to get a better education. My grandparents were able to scrape together the money to get her to the U.S. so that she could go to college and really make something of herself. She was a good student, but more than anything, there was kind of this feeling in Kenya at the time that sending your kid abroad, and especially to the United States, was a surefire way to make sure that they had a better future, but also the family. So my mom came here and she had to finish her last year of high school. And then her goal was to go on to university to be a doctor or nurse. She came to Reno, Nevada. Um, The people who were hosting her were living there at the time. And once she was done with school, she met my father through the African community. Weirdly enough, there's an African community in Reno. My father had just come back from the Peace Corps and was involved and friends with a bunch of Kenyans and other people in Reno. And my mom, of course, is part of that community. So... 
At least the story they told me was they met that way. <laughs> they got married and had me, and then when I was three years old, they got divorced. My mom moved to Porterville because of a job opportunity, so it was kind of a, a sacrifice for my mom to come to come to Porterville because there's definitely not much to do, and there's definitely not an African community there. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much how we ended up in middle of nowhere, California. I was lucky enough to go to Kenya the, for the first time when I was seven years old, so it's always really been a part of me from from the moment I was really cognizant of myself. And that first trip was great because for me, Kenya was trees and bugs and birds and the farm and playing with all these cousins that I had. Because in, in, back in the US, I really only have one cousin. That's it. I have a tiny family here, but my mom's family is huge. Um, but then when I started going in my teen years, I was having identity issues in general. And then going to Kenya and people uh, coming up to me and speaking to me in Swahili or my mom's tribal language, Kikamba, and then being totally shocked and then angry that I didn't know how to respond. That was really hard to take when you're 14 or 19. And all these questions like, who am I? What am I doing here? It was, it was pretty constant. My own cousins would kind of, in a roundabout way, accuse me of thinking I was better than them, um, which was hard to take because there's so many implications of race in that. Um, and because I'm half white, it was another, another kind of blow because it, it's not like I made myself this way. This is who I am. It's, it's funny, but I, I think a lot about Barack Obama, um, and I think... The moment he was elected, it kind of gave me a pass, especially in Kenya, because they're so proud of him. I mean, it was it was easy for me to have somebody like that to to, to forgive me for not speaking Swahili or Kikamba, because Barack Obama doesn't speak Luo or Swahili, but he's proud of where he's from, and and it's the same for me too. I just came back from Kenya. I was there April 2011. And this time was the easiest and the most fun and the most invigorating, I guess. The, the more I go and the older I get, the easier it gets because I think I'm more secure in who I am. One of the first nights I was in Kenya, I was staying at my auntie Ndunga's house and she's kept this family tradition alive of singing gospel music before bedtime. She invited some of the neighbors over because they generally come, you know, about once a week to sing songs and read the Bible. Everyone in my family has a catalog, hundreds of gospel songs in their head. And uh, so you just kind of throw something out there. And we're, we started with the youngest in the room, one of the neighbors, and we're going around. There's about five or six different songs. And now we're coming up to the point where I have to start a song. I had this moment of panic. Oh my God, what am I going to sing? I, I don't know any Swahili or Kamba songs in my head right now. I don't have any. The only song I could think of was the song that you're about to hear, which is kind of embarrassing because it's, it's every, every kid who's ever gone to Bible school in the U.S. knows this song. 
I mean, I'm almost 25 years old, and it's it's a children's song. It's not even uh, an adult level gospel song. So um, yeah, it was it was kind of embarrassing. You can you can hear it in my voice. You can hear the embarrassment in my voice, but what I love is that my family embraced it. And they went with it, they sang with it in, in English, and then they took it to the next level and, and started singing it in Swahili. Like, of course we know this song, and we know it even better in Swahili. this moment is important to me is because it's not like they ever disliked me for not knowing the language but that moment kind of confirms for me that they accept me for what I am you know like I'm there and I love them and they love me but you know they'll take me as I am I, I I'm an American and I sing in English and they can do it too and we're a family still that's what I really like about that moment And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Thanks again to Mwenda Hasey and Sean Ramosverum. I'm Robert Polly, wishing you a happy 4th, and may all your lights shine. We'll be back next week, of course, and in the meantime, you can always check us out on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. Time that the Lord has made.